New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. We're in the midst of an unprecedented spiritual renaissance as we rediscover the timeless wisdom of the ages, while at the same time are no longer limited to the faith of our particular culture. We might ask ourselves, what are the essential teachings that can shed light on who we truly are? Today we'll be looking into how we may go beyond the conventional beliefs that have become so deeply embedded in the way we seem to experience ourselves and the world with our guest, Rupert Spira. Rupert Spira is a preeminent non-dual teacher. At an early age, he was deeply interested in the nature of reality. At 17, he learned to meditate and began a 20-year period of study and practice in the classical Advaita Vedanta tradition. During this time, he immersed himself in the teachings of Ospensky, Krishnamurti, Rumi, Ramana Maharshi, and others until he met his teacher, Francis Lucille, in 1997. There he was introduced to what is known as the Direct Path. Spira lives in the United Kingdom and holds regular meetings and retreats in Europe and the United States. He's the author of many books and audio and video programs, including The Transparency of Things, Presence, Volume 1 and 2. Volume 1 is The Art and Peace of Happiness, and Volume 2 is The Intimacy of All Experience. Join us for the next hour as we explore the eternal and infinite nature of the self with our guest, Rupert Spira. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Rupert, welcome. Thank you, Justine. Very glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. May I call you, Rupert? Please do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I would like to begin. I, I mentioned in the very beginning that you are a non-dual teacher and or a teacher of non-dualism. Not everyone is familiar with that term, so I'm wondering if you can enlighten us with what that term means. Yes. The term, not, the term duality refers to the belief uh, that there are two essential realities to our experience. One, matter, and the other, mind. Moreover, our culture, our world culture is founded on the belief that mind or 
consciousness is derived from matter. So this is the, the fundamental assumption that underpins our world culture. The non-dual tradition and the non-dual teaching is the essential teaching that you find at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions. So all the great religious and spiritual traditions have this core non-dual understanding at their heart. The non-dual understanding uh, is, is based on the recognition that there is a single reality to everything that is known or experienced, that underlying all appearances, all separate objects, others and the world is, is a single, indivisible and unlimited reality which could be called consciousness in the religious traditions. It is called God. It is also the nature of what we essentially are. So it is also called I or the self. Okay. And when we think of the self, we think of that material bodily self, that, that, that self that I can touch and feel and, uh, yes. and see. The, the, that's very true. Most people feel that their essential self is their body, in which consciousness is supposed to be located. But if we explore our experience, we see very quickly that object, uh, objective experience consists of a flow of thoughts, images, memories, feelings, sensations, perceptions. But there is something that is aware of all of these. For instance, now, you and all your listeners are experiencing a, a flow of thoughts, the sound of this voice, whatever perceptions of the world are present, the sensations of their body, for instance, the tingling of the hands or the face or the feet. But all of these objects of experience are known. We are aware of them. We are aware of our thoughts. We are aware of our feelings and sensations. We are aware of our perceptions. So there is this element of experience that we call I, which is refers to that which knows or is aware of all thoughts, feelings, sensations, and perceptions. We could say that it is the knowing element in all experience. So, for instance, if I were to ask you now, are you aware of your thoughts? Yes. What, what right, would you respond? Right. You'd respond, right, yes, absolutely. of course. Absolutely, I'm aware if, of my... If I were to ask you, are you aware of the sound of the, this voice, what would you reply? Yes. Uh, are you aware of the sight of this room? Yes. Are you aware of the tingling sensation at the soles of your feet? Oh, okay, or, or, I hadn't or, thought or, about that, but yes. But, I can, but now that yeah, you think okay, about it, yeah, you feel right. a tingling there or a tingling behind the eyes. So in each of these statements, you've said, I'm aware of my thoughts. I'm aware of the sound of this voice. I'm aware of the sight of this room. I'm aware of the sensation of my hands on each other. So what is it that is aware of all of these? Whatever it is that is aware of a thought is obviously not itself a thought. So, I mean, normally I think of it as I am I, Justine, this Perfect. body is aware of it. No, it's normally... you, you're, you're quite right that I am aware 
of these thoughts, feelings, sensations, etc. But th then we make a leap and we say, I, this body, is aware of my thoughts. Now, the body you experience as a flow of sensations and perceptions, yes? Yes. A sensation is not itself aware. A sensation cannot hear something. It, it, it is awareness, what we call awareness, that is aware of experience. And I is the common name for awareness. That's why we say, I am aware of my thoughts. I am aware of the sound of this voice. I am aware of my emotions. So I is the name we give to that element of our experience that is aware. It's not the body that is aware. We are aware of the body. Right. The body is not aware. There's something else going on. There's an awareness. There's a perception. There is something exactly. going on. And I, you know, I'm kind of pointing to my head. It seems to come because it's usually out of the scene of my eyes that I become aware of my surroundings. So I think of it as exactly. some bodily exactly. sensation. That is why... Almost everybody believes that whatever it is that is seeing or knowing their experience is located just behind the eyes yes. in, in the brain. But strangely, no um, neurologist or brain surgeon has ever found consciousness in the brain. In fact, one of the most vexing questions for science at the moment is how is consciousness derived from the brain? Right. I, I would suggest, and in fact the non-dual traditions in general suggest that consciousness is not derived from the brain. It's not, an, uh, it's not a, a product of matter. In the non-dual traditions, it is suggested that consciousness is the primary and fundamental reality, and that everything is derived from consciousness, Consciousness is not derived from things. Okay, like I'm thinking that like philosophers would say, right, consciousness is pervasive and matter and energy are quantifiable. So does that, are you saying that, all right, if consciousness is, is are you saying all that is, and that there is no matter, there is, there is no, there are no physical things, there is no material world. Well, it's very interesting. Physicists have been looking for this stuff called matter for two and a half thousand years, and the, uh, the more they look for it, the less they find it. The less like matter, matter seems to be. So, th this table <laughs> isn't really a table, or it doesn't really exist. It doesn't exist in the way that we normally think of it, that is, as an object with its own independent reality made out of dead inert stuff called matter. But that doesn't mean that your experience of the table or indeed this room or the world is an illusion. Our experience is very real. Our experience is undeniably real. Even if we're having a dream or a hallucination, nevertheless, that experience is real. When we see a, a mirage in the desert, the mirage is an illusion, but there is something real to the illusion. 
that is, it is made of light, it is not made of water. So although it is said in the non-dual traditions that the world is an illusion, what it means is the world as it is normally conceived, as a multiplicity and diversity of objects made out of dead inert stuff called matter, that world does not exist, and indeed scientists cannot find it. But that doesn't mean that this illusory world doesn't have a reality to it. It does. There is something real about our experience of the world. And when we deeply investigate what that is, we find consciousness. Okay, that that's getting down to it. So does that mean that there is a relative world like when when we're functioning and we're we're eating and we're making love and when we're visiting with friends that that's a relative world that we're functioning in and then there's another world that's more ultimate or absolute or all consciousness or there's no division um, yes you could say that as long as we um follow that statement by the understanding that there is no real distinction between the relative and the absolute. They are different points of view rather than different realities. Let, let me give you an analogy. Before you do that, I'm, I'm, I want to get that analogy about the relative and the absolute, that they're not really so different. I'm, I'm here, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with teacher and author Rupert Spira, and he's the author of two volumes, Presence, The Art and Peace of Happiness and the Intimacy of All Experience. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, rupertspira, S-P-I-R-A dot com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with teacher Rupert Spira. He's the author of Presence, Volume 1, The Art of Peace and Happiness, and Presence, Volume 2, The Intimacy of All Experience. And Rupert, we were just talking about how the relative and the absolute are not really different, or you were going give, to give an analogy. Yes. I wanted to give you an analogy of what takes place in a dream because this very well illustrates the non-dual understanding. Imagine that a character called Mary falls asleep. And in her dream, she dreams that the streets of Paris, 
So the streets of Paris appear to Mary in her mind. However, in order to see the streets of Paris, Mary has to enter her own imagination and view the streets of Paris from a separate subject of experience located on the streets of Paris. And if you notice, whenever we have a dream, we imagine the dreamed world within our own mind, but we then enter our own imagination and view the dreamed world. And so we're walking down that street From the point of view of someone walking down the street. Now, for the ease of conversation, I'm going to call the person walking down the streets of Paris, Jane, just so that it's easy to, to discuss. So Mary falls asleep in, let's say, New York, and she dreams that she's Jane walking down the streets of Paris. Now, from Jane's point of view, her experience is divided into two essential ingredients. Matter on the outside, out of which all objects, others and the world are made, and mind on the inside, out of which her thoughts, images and feelings are made. So from Jane's perspective, reality consists of these two distinct uh, entities or ingredients, matter on the outside and mind on the inside. So everything Jane experiences, she experiences relative to her point of view located as Jane's body. When Jane closes her eyes, the streets of Paris disappear. When she opens them again, the streets of Paris reappear. So Jane reasonably concludes Whatever it is that is perceiving the streets of Paris must live just behind my eyes. The same thing happens when she closes her, her ears, etc. And this leads Jane to believe and feel that the awareness with which she knows her experience resides in her brain and is a byproduct of her brain. Now... Jane steps out onto the streets in Paris. She doesn't see a, a cab coming. This cab screeches to, to, to a halt, peeps the horn, and Mary wakes up in bed in New York. And Mary ponders her dream. She thinks, when the dream was going on, I was Jane in the dream, and from Jane's point of view, the world seems to be outside of me, and separate from me, and all the other people seemed to be separate from me. I felt alone on the streets of Paris, and everyone and everything else were separate from me. But now that I've woken up, I realize, in fact, that everything in the dream, both the thoughts, images, and feelings that Jane was experiencing inside of herself, and all the objects, people, and the world that Jane experienced outside of herself, in fact, took place in my own mind, in Mary's own mind. And Mary's own mind is one seamless, indivisible whole. It's not really divided into matter on the outside and mind on the inside. The entire dream was made out of Mary's indivisible consciousness. And yet, in now Jane is awake... And she's looking around her bedroom and yes, suddenly but, there she is again yes, with objects. And that's right. But when Jane asks herself the question, what is it that knows or is aware of my experience? 
Yeah, Jane is looking around her bedroom. She asks herself, what is, what is it that knows or is aware of my experience? In other words, another way we could say it is, what is the nature of the knowing with which I know my experience? Jane thinks that that knowing is located inside her body, which indeed in turn is located inside the world inside the room, inside the world. But when Mary wakes up, Mary, realize, it, Mary realizes the knowing with which Jane knew her experience wasn't located inside Jane or even inside Jane's world. It was located in Mary's mind. So are you saying in this analogy <laughs> that Mary represents... Consciousness. Consciousness. Yes. All pervasive consciousness yes. that is... Yes. Infinite awareness, yeah. uh, and I, I'm thinking of a, a another analogy that I've I've heard you use. You use like like we live in a bubble, somehow floating in this infinite awareness. I, well, yes, in a sense, you're right. If we use the analogy of the, of the dream, Mary falling asleep in New York, dreaming that she's Jane on the streets of Paris, and Mary realizing that. Jane's entire mind was, as it were, precipitated within her own mind. Now, what the non-dual teaching suggests is that each of our minds are precipitated within the same field of infinite consciousness. In other words, the knowing with which you know your experience and the knowing with which I know my experience are the same infinite, indivisible consciousness. Everything you know, that is your thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, they are personal and private. Everything I know, my own thoughts, feelings, sensations, images, memories, they are personal and private. You have no access to them. But what the non-dual teaching says is that the essence of each of our minds is the same. So is this like, is this the God that we're searching for? Is this... In the religious traditions, it, it is uh, said to be, yes, this ultimate reality is called God. This is why in the, in the Sufi tradition, they say, whosoever knows their self knows their Lord. Translate this to the analogy of Mary and Jane. If Jane were to recognize the true nature of her own mind, in other words, if she was to recognize the fact that her own mind is not limited to, nor does it live within her own body, but in fact her, her mind is really Mary's infinite mind in which the entire world appears, if Jane were to recognize the essential nature of her mind, she would recognize at the same time the essential nature of the universe that she perceives. In other words, the self that perceives and the universe that is perceived share a common reality. All right. How does this realization or this experience of this lead us to live a better life? How does it improve our life? I'm going to answer your question indirectly to, to begin with. 
when we fall in love with someone or indeed when we simply love someone, do we not feel to a greater or lesser degree that we are essentially one with that person? When we fall in love or when we love someone, is, is not love the experience of everything that separates us from that person. It seems for, to be without barriers. It, the we, barriers perfect. fall away. We, the barriers fall away. Everything that seemed to separate us, our beliefs, our feelings, our, etc. At least at first. <laughs> they, they fall away. So love is the experience of, of our shared being. Love is the experience of feeling one with the other. Now, could it be that the experience of love is the recognition that what we essentially are is one. Isn't that what love is? Yes. The, the, the feeling, I am one with you. Well, could it be that that feeling is, is an, an intuition, more than an intuition, but an experience of how things really are? In other words, that we are essentially one, that we share our being. In other words, that there aren't seven billion beings on the planet. There is one being. And each of us derives our sense of ourself from that shared being. So that's a good analogy because I think we've all can remember uh, that feeling of love of loving whether it's loving our our dog or our cat or or loving Whatever our parents or, or yeah. you know our child especially uh that we can feel that and I, I, that's a nice uh analogy i haven't heard about before yes. uh, to describe love and and in fact it it's not just limited to people and animals take the experience everybody has had at some stage in their life the experience uh, walking in the landscape or listening to a piece of music where we say, um, my breath was taken away. It was breathtakingly beautiful. Or what happens in that moment? I would suggest that exactly the same thing happens as we were describing in the experience of love, that, the, that there is a collapse in that moment in the landscape or listening to the piece of music, I would suggest that in that moment that whatever it is that separates us from the landscape or the music falls away and we feel one with nature or one with the music. Almost everybody has had this experience. The common name for that experience is beauty. Mm. When, we, when, we, when we say, oh, the the music was so beautiful. What we are trying to say is, in the moment of listening to it, I, I disappeared as a separate self. I, I felt one with the music or, or, or the landscape. So I, I'm suggesting that the experience of beauty is, to objects, the same experience that love is to people and animals. It, 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 is, it is an experience of the reality that, uh, that, that we all share, that underneath this apparent multiplicity and diversity of objects and selves, there is a single 
shared reality, which most people access through the experience of love and beauty. I'm here with Rupert Spira, and he is a teacher of non-dualism. He's the author of many books, many audio programs and video programs. His most recent books are Presence, Volume 1 and 2. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, rupertspira.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with non-dual teacher Rupert Spira, and we're talking about non-dualism and the nature of reality. Rupert, I wanted to ask you, um, you've just described this feeling of love, this feeling of non-duality. This is something that we've all experienced. Absolutely. We, we, so yeah. you've, you've really kind of carried us there and said, hey, this isn't exotic. This isn't far In, away from exactly. us. And uh, so what is your recommendation or advice about how to bring this more into our daily lives? For most people, this approach starts with an investigation into our experience. We have all been conditioned by our culture to believe that first the, uh, there was the Big Bang and then time and space and then the universe and then the world and then the body and then the brain. And at some state, late stage, this phenomenon called consciousness appeared. Now, that view of reality is at odds with our experience. In our experience, consciousness or awareness, I use the terms synonymously, is the primary element of experience. Nobody has ever experienced a universe or a world or a body or a brain or a thought without consciousness. Mm -hmm. So this, this approach involves uh, a very honest exploration of experience. We don't start with any assumptions or, or beliefs. We agree that experience must be the test of reality. In other words, we are really a little bit like scientists. We agree that if something is real, it must experience must be the test. So we explore our experience. What is the primary element of experience? Consciousness. Can you have an experience of anything without consciousness? Well, <laughs> without awareness. Uh, without oh, all right, awareness. It, it, that's a that's an easier word for okay, me awareness. to work with. So, okay, awareness. Let's use the word awareness. So, uh, can I experience this cup of water in front of me without awareness? No, no, I can't. I mean, 
I may think of this cup as something separate from myself still. But, you know, that, I'm not there yet. But that's right. We may think uh-huh. or believe that the cup has an existence independent of awareness, but our, we don't want to refer to our beliefs. Yeah, We want to be like honest scientists and refer only to experience. Okay. Has anyone or could anyone experience a world, a body, a thought, a cup, anything at all in the absence of awareness? My first intuitive answer is no. Yes. We can only experience it through awareness. Perfect. Yes. In other words, awareness is the primary element of experience. We cannot legitimately assert the existence of anything prior to awareness because we could never experience anything prior to awareness. Because we wouldn't be aware of it. Perfect. Yes. I couldn't have said it better. Right. However, our world culture is founded upon the presumption that the world made out of this dead inert stuff called matter was here first and that at some late stage awareness developed in the brain. Well, that's a that's the materialist viewpoint of materialist that, science. Well, that is but there the, are some philosophers that would say that consciousness was there, well, and you're, then you're, out of that you're, came you're, the material. You're talking to one of them, yes. Oh, <laughs> you're talking me. to one of those, one of those uh, um, people, philosophers, or, or that, that would say awareness or consciousness is the primary element of reality. That, that, that it's not consciousness that comes out of matter. That matter is a way of... Matter is not what we see, it is a way of seeing. Jane, remember Jane in, in the dream, Mary falls asleep in New York, she dreams she's Jane on the streets of Paris... Jane believes that the world she sees, the streets of Paris, is made out of stuff called matter. That is stuff that exists outside of her own mind. But when Mary wakes up, she realizes that the streets of Paris was not made out of stuff called matter. It was made out of her own consciousness. Right. So Jane on the streets of Paris thinks, the world was here before me. I was born into the world. Right. The world made out of matter was it here was first. It was here before me, yes. It was here. In other words, matter is primary. But when Mary wakes up, she realizes, no, this world made out of matter was just how my own mind appears to itself when it is perceived through Jane's mind. In other words, matter is not what we see. It is a way of seeing. And yes. it's not a coincidence that the more physicists look for the stuff called matter, the less like matter it becomes. I, somehow I'm, I'm going to have to contemplate that, that what you just said. Matter is a way of seeing. Not That's something that is not seen. Not something that is seen. Matter is a way of seeing not something that is seen. Yes. Let's, uh, let's talk a bit. Now, go this, ahead. Sorry, just, yes, just to interrupt. Please. This is what William Blake meant when he said, as a man is, so he sees. What he meant was, as we understand the nature of our own mind, 
so the world or reality appears in correspondence with that understanding. In other words, if we want to understand the nature of the world, we first have to understand the nature of the mind through which the world is perceived. Right. It's not the world out there that exists. Well, that brings up the question, do we all live in different worlds then of our own perception? No, no, that, that's not necessarily the implication of what I'm suggesting, because I'm suggesting that each of our minds appears within and is informed by the same infinite awareness or consciousness. So let's say, let's go back to the dream analogy. Mary falls asleep in New York. She dreams she's Jane on the streets of Paris. All Jane's friends on the streets of Paris see the same world, roughly. Why? Because they all appear in Mary's mind. It's the sameness of Mary's mind that makes Jane and her friends feel they see the same world. So if you're saying Mary's mind as uh, all-pervasive consciousness, exactly. then, then it's, it's the same perception. Yes. It, in other words, the, the, there is this all-pervasive consciousness, and each of our minds appear in and are informed by the same field of consciousness. And therefore, part of our experience is shared. We, we view the same world. We do experience the same world, but not because there is one world out there made out of matter, but because each of our minds are precipitated within the same infinite consciousness. So does consciousness have a point of view? Well, that's like saying, does Mary have a point of view? Yes, Jane is her point of view. Jane <laughs> is the view, is the point through which Mary sees the world. So each of our minds are consciousness's point of view. Or in religious terms, we could say each of our minds are an open window through which God's infinite being knows itself as the world. So that, that would... Um mean that, that there is a room for individuality. Absolutely. Absolutely. That there is room for individuality, but at the same time, there is a recognition that the essence of each one of us is the same. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us become merged into one, one stereotypical uh, person, no. There's each each of our bodies, uh, each of our minds is unique and individual. But what is recognised that is the essence of each of our minds is shared. So this is what uh, keeps it life from being boring. <laughs> In my terms, of, actually, um, it, it, w w what makes for uh, um, boredom and uh, stereotypes is the belief that. Each of us is a separate, finite self. In other words, the ego. The ego is, the, is a stereotype that is always conforming. So, in fact, that this point of view increases our uh, the diversity, individuality. It increases the sense of freedom, and therefore uh, our characters are are relieved of the tyranny of the ego.
they actually flourish as a result of this understanding. They are not uh, all made some uniform, blank, whitewashed screen. On the contrary, our characters flourish when they are relieved of the the dulling or the separating effect of the separate ego. Oh, I'd like to understand that more fully, Rupert, because that's, that interests me, how, how we might flourish. Well, you see, the sense of being a separate self, a, a fragment cut off from everyone and everything, makes people fearful uh, and in need. And in fact, the fear and need are the two defining characteristics of the apparently separate person or ego. Anyone that feels that they are a, a separate individual is motivated primarily by uh, fear and need or seeking or resistance and seeking. So if we if we feel I am a, a, a separate individual cut off from everyone and everything, our sole motivation in life is to a, acquire an object, a substance, an activity. So there's a, a, a grasping. Yes, yes. And, and we're grasp. what are we grasping? We're grasping some kind of object, a, a substance, an activity, a relationship. And the purpose of that grasping is to bring an end to the sense of lack, or, or, in fact, the fear of death. These are the two motivations that motivate the separate self, the sense of lack and the fear of death or disappearance. And most people seek objects, relationships, substances to put an end to that sense of lack or, or fear. Now, if a sense of being a separate self dissolves, if we know that what we essentially are is without limits is ever-present, then our relationship with life changes. It doesn't mean to say we stop seeking relationships or having relationships or activity, but we stop seeking relationships in order to produce happiness for a separate needy self. I'm here with Rupert Spira. He's the author of two volumes, Presence, the transparency of things, and the intimacy of all experience. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with non-dual teacher Rupert Spira, and we're talking about 
non-duality, about the ultimate reality, about presence. Uh, and, and you just mentioned in the last segment, you mentioned something about death and our fear of death. And when, when we know that we are one with universe, with one with all that is, we are not separate from reality and then we're released from the fear. And one of our primary fear is the fear of death. And um, so in, in all of this, what about death? Is, so why shouldn't we fear our demise and death? Is there death? What, say, tell us about death and the concept of death, and is that real? If we make a deep exploration of what we essentially are. At the core of ourselves, we find this presence of awareness. The presence of awareness that is aware of our thoughts, feelings, sensations, and perceptions, but is not itself a thought, feeling, sensation, or perception. We could call it a, uh, an empty or transparent uh, knowing or aware presence that is prior to, our. it is our essential self-aware being that is prior to any thought, feeling, sensation, or perception. All thoughts, feelings, sensations, and perceptions are continuously appearing and disappearing. But this background presence of awareness, our essential being, remains consistently present throughout all experience. In other words, the awareness that is currently aware of this experience is in exactly the same condition as the awareness that was aware of our experience two minutes ago, or two hours ago, or two days ago, or 20 years ago, or when we were all five-year-old girls and boys playing in the garden. In other words, the presence of awareness, our essential being, is always in the same pristine condition. It could be likened to a screen upon which the movie of life is playing. The screen is never harmed by the movie. The movies just pass over the screen, but they don't stain the screen. They don't hurt the screen. They don't damage the screen. They don't age the screen. So once we know that we are this open, empty presence of awareness through which all experience flows or in which all experience appears, we have a sense that no experience uh, no experience leaves a trace on us. No experience harms us. Uh, our essential being is always in the same innocent, fresh, pristine, wide-open condition. It's like the space of this room. Nothing that takes place in the space of this room could hurt the space. So there is this recognition. Nothing that takes place within me, however wonderful or awful my experience might be, nothing can stain or essentially affect what I am. What I am is this, this whole, indivisible, indestructible, aware being. All thoughts, sensations and perceptions appear and disappear, but I, this self-aware being, don't appear or disappear. I don't come and go. I am ever-present. I am eternal. So what I'm getting from this is that in the direct path that you're talking about, there's not necessarily a progression of, of knowing 
that, that it, we, we go from this stage it, to exactly. this stage or this stage, but exactly. it can be right in the moment. Whatever conditions we find ourselves in, we may be um, in the midst of a of a trauma or a crisis, so we, we may be sick. We, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we go directly to the experience of being aware, which is this background of awareness that that remains present throughout all changing experience, like the screen remains present throughout all changing movies. And we, we go directly there, irrespective of the content of, of our lives, the content of our thoughts. I mean, so it's a very direct path. It requires no uh, preparation, no training, no arduous meditation practice. We just go directly, oh, yes, what I essentially am is the presence of awareness through which all my experience flows, but which is never harmed or hurt or stained or changed or aged by experience. In other words, we, we recognize the essential, imperturbable nature of ourself. And this is what is referred to as the peace that passeth understanding. It is the peace that is not the result of particular experiences or conditions. It is the peace that is prior to all objective experience, the peace that is innate in our own being. And it is there for the asking. It just requires turning around, as it were, and looking at the essential nature of what we call I or myself. So in in this, does that mean that if we do certain practices, like, say, the practice of meditation, I mean, could that be helpful, though, to to help us to maintain or to create some sort of stability in this this open, empty presence that you're talking about. Yes. In this approach, meditation is not considered to be a practice in the sense of manipulating one's experience or focusing one's mind in any way. And meditation in this approach is what we are, it's not what we do. Meditation is to to be knowingly this open, empty presence of awareness rather than to become something in the future. We are already, what we essentially are, is already this open, empty space of awareness in which all thoughts, sensations and perceptions arise. We don't have to practice in order to become that. We just simply have to first notice that and then take our stand as that. So I, I want to ask you one other question, uh, and that's the, I, I know that you have said, you have talked about uh, longing, uh, as, as longing is not something that, I mean, we all are, are looking, longing for God, longing, that idea, that concept of longing, and and you're saying that that is is not something that's terribly beneficial for us. Yes. Can you explain? Yes. When we are in a state of longing, uh, our longing comes because we are we feel something is missing. And so we long for uh, an object, a relationship, a child, a, a house, or uh, God. Or we, we long for something which we believe will finally put an end to our sense of lack. And as we all know, no object of experience ever 
fully brings our longing to an end. It may temporarily bring longing to an end, but as soon as the object either vanishes or changes, the sense of longing comes back and hence we go for the next object and hence the cycle of expectation, desire, fulfillment leads to addiction. So once this cycle or process has been observed, we, we realize that what we are longing for lives at the, at the source of our longing. It never at the end of our longing. In other words, our essential being, the, the innate peace of our essential being is in fact what we have been seeking all this time in objects in the world. The objects in the world never provide the peace or the fulfillment for which we long. And at some stage, we uh, are open to this new possibility that what we long for, the peace for which we long, the fulfillment for which everybody longs, lives in their own being. It's accessible, available to everybody in their own being. But most of us are so fascinated by the objective contents of experience, our thoughts, our images, feelings, relationships, activities, that we overlook this simple presence of our own being, in which is, as I said earlier, like, a, like an open space that is never harmed or changed or moved or hurt by experience. In other words, its nature is peace. The peace for which we have been looking all along in the world, in fact, was was in our own being all the time. I, I know that we often have like the habit of longing. I mean, we're we're taught that advertising teaches us to long for things. And uh, advertising not only encourages us to long for things, as you say, but they also persuade us over and over and over again that when we get the object <laughs> that is being advertised, our longing will come to an end. And what is the end of longing called? It's called happiness. In other words, advertising encourages us to think that if you only have this object or if you only look like this person or if you only have this car, your longing, your happiness, will, your longing will come to, to an end. But we all know it doesn't work. At, at some stage, when we have been failed sufficiently often by objects and relationships and activity, we are open to this new possibility that the, the peace or the fulfillment for which we long resides in our, in our very own being all along. And that is the place to find it or access it. And in the di this direct approach, we go straight there. We don't go via a series of progressive practices. Or we go direct to the peace of our true nature. Rupert, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Justine. I've enjoyed it very much. I've been here with Rupert Spira. He's a non-dual teacher, and he's the author of Presence, Volume 1, The Art of Peace and Happiness, and Volume 2, The Intimacy of All Experience. To find out more about the work of Rupert Spira, go to his website, rupertspira.com, S-P-I-R-A, rupertspira.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3598.
New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.